Hi everyone and welcome to this episode on the consumer duty. In early November we've run a webinar on scoping where and how the consumer duty will apply to your firm and that's the first step in your implementation journey. Once that webinar is run you'll find a recording of it on our consumer duty webpage. Just google Linklater's consumer duty or check the show notes for a link. And to complement this webinar, this podcast episode will examine some specific case studies on scoping for asset managers. I'm Duncan Campbell, a senior associate in our London financial regulation team, and here with me is my colleague Claire Wiles, an associate also in our uh, London financial regulation team. Welcome, Claire. Hi there, Duncan. So in this episode, we're going to dive into a few case studies on the scope of the consumer duty for asset managers. And I suppose a good place to start is why the consumer duty is such an issue for asset managers when they don't deal directly with retail investors in many cases, given obviously the purpose of the consumer duty is to better protect retail customers. Yeah, that's a really good point, Duncan. So kind of taking a step back, the consumer duty is widely construed and it will apply where a firm either has direct interactions or client relationships with retail customers, or where the firm is in a distribution chain and quote unquote, determines or has material influence over retail customer outcomes, notwithstanding that the retail customer may not be its client due to the indirect nature of their relationship. So really, the point is that asset managers will need to look through the chain to the end consumer. And if this is a retail customer, then the manager will need to assess whether they are materially influencing that customer's outcomes. Yes, and there really isn't a black and white definition of material influence, nor is there a great deal of guidance, actually, from the FCA on what material influence means in specific sector contexts. But you'd expect many asset managers will have a material influence, at least on the design of retail products, and and hence on at least outcomes one and two for retail customers. So that's product and services and price and value for the purposes of the consumer duty. That's absolutely right, though, of course, asset managers will need to do this material influence assessment against all four outcomes under the consumer duty. Absolutely. So with that background, let's work through those few case studies to illustrate this. And I thought actually we might work uh, first through a case study where an asset manager's activity wouldn't amount to material influence. Claire, can you take us through an example? Of course. One scenario that comes up relatively frequently is where we have an investment management entity carrying out fund discretionary management on a delegated basis from a fund manager client and where the fund manager and investment management entity are not in the same group. Here, the fund manager might set the investment policy and the guidelines of the fund So the investment management entity will need to manage the fund in accordance with these guidelines and won't have any discretion to deviate from them. Now, at a first glance, this kind of scenario should be out of scope of the consumer duty. And that's because the FCA has given quite clear guidance in the final policy statement that a portfolio manager whose role is limited to managing assets under a mandate that's been determined by a professional client, and that client is entirely independent of the manager, is likely to be out of scope of the consumer duty. And this makes sense, of course, in the context of the material influence test, because after all, how can a portfolio manager actually exercise material influence on end retail customer outcomes if they're entirely acting within a predetermined mandate? But that being said, in this scenario I described, I don't think you should just de-scope the manager upfront. 
They'll still need to conduct the material influence test against all four outcomes to determine whether they might be in scope of any other part of the consumer duty. For instance, they might be operating within this predetermined mandate, but still be involved in, say, promoting the product or sending customer communications on it. And then they might need to think about whether they're in scope of outcome three. So really the point I'm trying to make is that you will need to check your activity against all four outcomes to assess whether you're in scope of the consumer duty. That's a really useful example. Thank you, Claire. Okay, so we've gone through an example of where a firm will likely not have a material influence. Shall we look a bit more at an example of a firm um, where it may well be materially influencing retail customer outcomes? So I've actually got a scenario here I'd like to test out with you. Of course. So let's say we have an asset manager designing and selling products to institutional clients, and those include defined benefit occupational pension scheme trustees and defined contribution occupational pension scheme trustees. And these trustees aren't actually really retail customers under the consumer duty. So how should the asset manager assess the consumer duty scoping in in that context? So obviously, as we've already talked about, When an asset manager doesn't have direct retail customers, the starting point is the material influence. And actually, the FCA has also clarified that where an asset manager is providing services to a trustee of an occupational pension scheme, that asset manager should consider the scheme beneficiaries to be retail customers in its chain and should assess whether it is materially influencing their outcomes. So does the type of pension scheme matter in this context? It's a good question. And it's one that comes up quite frequently. So really, the difference between defined benefit and defined contribution schemes is that in a defined benefit scheme, the investment risk is legally held by the trustees themselves, and they'll have to pay out a defined amount to the beneficiaries, regardless of the scheme's performance or the performance, obviously, of the underlying funds. This isn't the case, though, for a defined contribution scheme, as these are often structured such as that the performance of the underlying funds will impact the beneficiaries' payouts. Now, that being said, the FCA has also said that asset managers' roles in respect of investment performance isn't on its own enough to assess whether material influence applies. I think putting that all together, really the key takeaway is that if you're an asset manager with pension scheme trustee clients, Now, regardless of whether these are defined benefit or defined contribution scheme trustees, you still need to work through the material influence test against all four outcomes for the end beneficiaries. So I think it'd be really useful now to actually step through how those outcomes would apply to defined benefit and then defined contribution scenarios. Can you talk us through those? Sure. So for instance, starting with the defined benefit uh, scenario. Now, let's say you're the asset manager and you're working through whether you have a material influence on, say, outcomes two or three, of course, the price and value and the consumer understanding outcomes. So for outcome two, you should think about whether there's any way in which you might materially influence price and value outcomes for the end beneficiaries of the scheme, notwithstanding, of course, the structure that we already discussed and the fact that the scheme beneficiaries will get a defined payout. For outcome two, you should think about whether there's any way in which you could materially influence the price and value outcome for end beneficiaries, notwithstanding, of course, the structure of a defined benefit scheme. For instance, if you were, say, deliberately undertaking high-risk strategies, that might mean the trustees are unable to pay out to end beneficiaries 
that might amount to material influence. And then for outcome three, you should think about whether you are, say, producing any materials that are intended to go to scheme beneficiaries or whether you are otherwise interacting with them. And in contrast, what about the defined contribution trustee client scenario? Well, as I said earlier, the performance of the underlying funds of a scheme will impact on beneficiaries' payouts. So the starting point might be to assume that the duty does apply here, particularly in respect to outcome two, but you should still nevertheless conduct the material influence test against each of the four outcomes. And after all, if you're not involved in preparing, approving, or distributing materials to the scheme beneficiaries or otherwise interacting with them, you may not be impacted by either the customer understanding outcome or indeed the customer support outcome. That's really helpful. Thank you. So I'd like to work through one more case study here, which is where a fund manager arguably has material influence, but also is quite remote from the retail customer. And one such example that often comes up here is where a fund manager is working with the board of an investment trust. So how should the manager be thinking about the consumer duty here? Yeah, so that's a key example. And I think this really ties into the idea of proportionality in the consumer duty. And of course, that means that the extent of a firm's responsibilities will depend on its role and the extent of the firm's influence over retail customer outcomes. Now, with investment trusts, the manager might have a material influence over the product design and other matters. But the trust's legal structure means that ultimate decisions are taken by the board. So the manager's obligations under the consumer duty may be more limited, or at least they may be more limited in the steps they can take to actually comply with the duty. So even though the obligations are more limited in that scenario, what steps can uh, asset managers take in relation to the board then to comply with the duty, considering they don't have control over many of the key decisions? That's a good question. As an example, thinking about the price and value outcome, although fund managers of investment trusts may not be able to influence the outcome of the trust, they will still be able to review the costs being charged to retail customers in relation to the trust. They should focus here on the costs over which they have sufficient control, such as the management fee and related charges, but also say any third party charges that they might have oversight of or perhaps are involved in the negotiations of. They can then assess whether these costs represent fair value to retail customers and present their findings and recommendations to the board. They should also ensure that they keep an audit trail of these reviews and their findings and recommendations. Right, that makes sense. So ultimately, it'll uh, still be up to the board to decide whether to amend the costs, but the investment managers should ensure they cover themselves by evidencing that they have taken the steps they need to take to meet the value outcome of, of the duty to the extent it applies to them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Thank you very much, Claire. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode and we hope you found it useful. Check the show notes for a link to our Consumer Duty webpage with all our insights as we publish them, including a link to the webinar. And of course, don't hesitate to get in touch with us or your usual Linklater's contact to discuss anything further. Thank you very much for listening.